You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro. And I'm Jean Herb. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, January 18th. Later in the program, we have the Disabilitan, a segment highlighting disability issues affecting the country and the world. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Bloomington police arrested a 56-year-old white woman in connection with what police are calling a racially motivated attack. More coming up next in your Social Justice Watch. Good evening, and this is your Social Justice Watch on WFHB. Bloomington police arrested a 56-year-old white woman in connection with what police are calling a racially motivated attack. Police arrested Billy Davis after she allegedly confessed to the crime, which took place on a public bus on the corner of West 4th Street and the Beeline Trail. Davis was booked to the Monroe County Jail and charged with a Level 1 felony. According to the police report, the victim was an 18-year-old woman from Carmel. She reported her head was bleeding and was transported to an area hospital for her injuries. In her testimony, the victim explained that she was riding on a Bloomington transit bus and stood up to wait for her stop. She said that while she was standing, another passenger began to strike her repeatedly in the head, causing immediate pain. After treatment for her injuries, it was discovered that she had multiple stab wounds to the head. The IU Asian Cultural Center released a statement on the incident saying, quote, We are outraged and heartbroken by this unprovoked act of violence, but we also worry about the well-being of our community. We should not be fearing for our lives on public transportation. Taking the bus should not feel dangerous, end quote. Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton commented, quote, We stand with the Asian community and all who feel threatened by this event, end quote. According to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at Cal State University in San Bernardino, reported anti-Asian hate crimes rose 164% in the first quarter of 2021, compared to the previous year. To learn more about what you can do to fight violence and racism against Asian Americans, visit WFHB.org following this broadcast for several resources. That's all for your Social Justice Watch. For WFHB, I'm Abe Shapiro. At the Monroe County Council meeting on January 10th, Monroe County Sheriff Ruben Marte gave a department update and introduced the new jail commander, Kyle Molden. Molden shared the changes they have been making at the jail. Primarily, our interests are providing programs, cleaning it up, making it a place where we can reduce recidivism through programs like that. So, like, when they come in, there was a process before that was standard coming through the Sally Port, you come into the booking area. And we, we walked in day one, we're like, this is not gonna work. It's not gonna work because it's not appealing to human nature. We're not, we're really not giving these people the transition from outside to inside we thought was flawed. So that puts back all our programs. It, it causes them to have issue with bringing these people in, allowing these people to open up and disclose certain information so that they can begin programs and putting these people in the programs they need to be in to be successful. So I heard something yesterday in the meeting 
and the, they said specifically, jails don't disappear social problems, they disappear people. And that actually struck a chord with me, uh, and I know it did with Sheriff Monte. And that really caused me, I reached out to uh, Care Not Cages, Sydney Foreman, I wanna bring her in, I'm gonna try to work with her and how to really facilitate that process and really help us reach our goals that Sheriff Marte has set for us. So uh, the interest of treating people like humans and they won't react like animals if you treat them like animals. And that's really what we're focused on. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of information here that I'll try to get through real quick, but it's really predicated on giving these people that are incarcerated in our facility the platform to be successful once they leave. And we believe that will reduce recidivism as a result. Molden informed the commissioners on the number of individuals in the jail and explained how they plan to address the issue of overcrowding. So, real quick, we have 294 beds in our facility. Um, currently, we have 182 people, uh, 161 felonies. The next number is kind of astonishing, and I think that's I think that's a credit to our judicial system here with a pretrial release program. We have 16 misdemeanors, which I've been at various facilities. That is one, some of the lowest I've ever seen. So it, it sounds like, and, and the numbers speak, uh, again, we're new, we're still trying to figure it out, but it's clear that people are coming in and the people that need to be there that are rest of the community and really need access to these programs are being held here throughout their court case. The people that can come out pre-trial and do things on their own and get prepared for the court cases are filtering out pretty quickly, which less people in the jail means more opportunity for the people in the jail to be successful with issues with overcrowding in most facilities. So it's worked out pretty well. We've got three parole holds, one out of county holds. So as of this moment, and the thing that we really wanted to touch on today was our general population. So currently, we have a tier system. There's minimum, medium, maximum classifications. There's, there's people that require close observation and things of that nature. Uh, as of this moment, we have people that are in tiers, essentially. So you guys know there's two levels to the jail. There's a lower tier and a higher tier. Each day, the lower tier gets four hours out. The upper tier gets four hours out. So bi-weekly that switches where the upper tier will have an opportunity to come out in the morning make phone calls and communicate better with everybody on the outside based on timing but the issue with that is they spend about 18 hours a day on lockdown even the people that are on close observation maximum security so just your run-of-the-mill person that comes in that has a disorderly conduct makes a mistake they're locked down 18 hours a day uh that's that's not going to continue to happen but not with us so what we're trying to do, and we're going to have to do it at levels, we can't just let everybody out at once. We're going to increase time out. It does two things. It humanizes them and it reminds them that they have obligations on the outside of the facility and it doesn't force them to live in their confined cell for 18 hours a day. That allows us to clean those cells and have more, uh, you know, get in there and make sure things are handled correctly. But it, the second thing it does, it gives them something to work for and to be prideful of. You know, I they're gonna protect that time out, so they're gonna respond better to rules, and they're gonna be more involved in programs. They're not gonna be shut down. So, and, and that's real important to us. So, there are some things we can't change with, with maximum security. That's for the protection of not only those people, but other people that are in there. So, we're going through that. Now, with that being said, 
uh, altered mental status. This is the first, first facility I've ever seen that has 80 hours of mental health services available on, on the property. So they're there all day long. I've never seen that. So that's a credit to the, the community uh, as well as other programs. So. Councilmember Jennifer Crossley responded to the report and said it gave her hope that they are working with programs in the community like New Leaf, New Life. In contrast to um, our meeting yesterday, this is something that gives a breath of fresh air. Um, and it is hopeful. And I, I'm, this gives me a lot of hope because I, I had many thoughts. But um, this gives me a lot of hope. And I'm happy to hear that. And I'm really happy to hear that groups and services are reaching out and you are willing to work with them. Um, and I would be really interested to see how groups like um, New Leaf, New Life, because I know that that was something that they wanted to be a part of as well um, to, to be in here. So this gives, I, I appreciate that, um, that this, this breakdown and it gives me great hope for the future. So thank you. Yeah. Councilmember Cheryl Munson also expressed her support for their collaboration with New Leaf, New Life. Marte responded to their collaboration and said the partnership had been set up for a while. It, it, I met with, the, if it's still the same president, I met with her and we had a lengthy conversation. So we knew when we took this on that they were going to be a partner with us. So that was, that was set up way back, back yeah. in the beginning. So, yes. Councilmember Pete Iverson thanked the sheriff's department for reaching out to Care Not Cages and asked if the program, Helping Men Recover, is ongoing. Molden shared that it would be restarting soon. The council thanked the sheriff's department for their report on the county jail. The next Monroe County Council meeting will be held on February 14th. The Supreme Court met today to hear a case regarding a deaf student, Miguel Luna Perez of Sturgis, Michigan, who was denied access to a professional sign language interpreter and whose parents were falsely told over the course of 12 years their son was on his way to graduation only to receive a certificate of completion. The case concerns two laws, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, which requires children with disabilities to be provided a free appropriate public education, or FAPE, and the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, which prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in general. Upon receiving the news, the Perez family filed a lawsuit against the Michigan Department of Education and the Sturgis School Board on the grounds that the school violated both the IDEA and ADA acts. However, before the case could go to trial, Sturgis School District offered a settlement in which it would pay for Perez to attend the Michigan School for the Deaf and compensate the family's legal fees. The family accepted the settlement, but then continued their lawsuit under the ADA, which, unlike IDEA, entitles victims of disability discrimination to sue for monetary damages. The question now before the court is whether, by accepting the district's settlement, did the Perez family forfeit their right to further litigation for monetary damages? Prior to the Supreme Court hearing the case, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that had Perez not agreed to a settlement, he could have continued his case under the ADA. But because Perez did not go through the two-step process mandated by the IDEA Act, consisting of informal resolution between parents and the district, and administrative review by an impartial hearing officer before going to federal court, and instead deciding to settle or, in legalese, exhaust his claim, he was not entitled to sue under the ADA, as stipulated by the IDEA Act Section 1415L. 
On behalf of Perez, his lawyer, Roman Martinez, opened the arguments. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. For 12 years, Sturgis neglected Miguel, denied him an education, and lied to his parents about the progress he was allegedly making in school. This shameful conduct permanently stunted Miguel's ability to communicate with the outside world. It also violated two federal statutes, the IDEA and the ADA, giving different remedies to victims of discrimination. Miguel responded by doing everything the IDEA wants him to do. He filed an IDEA agency claim. He followed the IDEA settlement procedures, and he accepted a favorable settlement, giving him full IDEA relief, including an immediate FAPE. Sturgis wants you to hold that this settlement extinguishes Miguel's separate and distinct rights to money damages under the ADA. You should reject that. I want to emphasize three points. First, the text only requires exhaustion if a non-IDEA claim seeks relief that's actually available under the IDEA. Exhaustion isn't required in cases like this one seeking only money damages, a remedy the IDEA does not authorize. Second, Miguel's settlement fully exhausted the IDEA procedures. Further exhaustion is unnecessary and it's futile because it would be pointless. Miguel has already received everything he's entitled to under the IDEA statute. And third, the net effect of Sturgis's arguments here is to defy the IDEA's clear purpose. That purpose is twofold. One, getting kids a FAPE as quickly as possible, and two, preserving their legal rights under other statutes in the Constitution. Sturgis puts these goals on a collision course with each other. In any given case, its rule will either disincentivize settlements and block immediate FAPE relief, or it will nullify rights under other statutes. That makes no sense. Congress didn't punish kids for saying yes to favorable IDEA settlements. One way or the other, this case should proceed. I welcome the court's questions. In a surprise twist, the normally silent Clarence Thomas was the first to pose a question expressing confusion about the differences between the ADA and IDEA Acts. Martinez responded by agreeing with Thomas. The difficulty I'm having is I can't see where ADA fits in with IDEA. Right. That seems to be an entirely different remedy. And whether we, when we have PLRA cases, et cetera, it's usually about the same thing. A hundred percent, Your Honor. I think that's exactly the right way to think about the statute. And I think what Congress was trying to do here was essentially say, we want you to have rights under both statutes. We want you to be able to go into court if necessary and vindicate your separate rights to separate types of relief under both statutes. But in circumstances, in certain circumstances, we want you to go through the IDEA administrative procedures first. And the text of the statute says that if your ADA claim is only seeking things that you can't get under the IDEA, in the words of Fry, if the consequence of your ADA claim, if you brought it in the IDEA procedure, would be that the IDEA hearing officer would have to send you away empty-handed because that statute just does not provide you that type of relief, that type of relief is not available, then you do not have to exhaust. On the side of Sturgis, Shea Dvoretsky then presented his argument. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. When Congress enacted Section 1415L, it channeled all FAPE denial claims through the IDEA's exhaustion procedures. Congress carefully crafted those procedures and it wanted parents and school districts to go through them because of the primacy of a FAPE. Congress's choice helps answer both questions presented, plus the third that per Mr. Perez wants to add. On the first question, 
Congress's choice shows that the word relief in 1415L means redress for harm, not a specific remedy. When a plaintiff complains of a FAPE denial, relief is available under the IDEA, and the plaintiff must exhaust. Any other test would allow plaintiffs to circumvent the exhaustion requirement Congress carefully crafted by using the magic word damages and going straight to court. On the futility question, Congress's choice explains the unusually specific words that Congress wrote. A plaintiff must exhaust to the same extent as would be required had the action been brought under the IDEA. That directive reflects Congress's focus on delivering a FAPE, and it makes two things clear. One, exhausting a non-IDEA claim means obtaining an administrative decision from an educational expert, just as an IDEA plaintiff must do before going to court. That's why Mr. Perez's improper new argument that settles equals exhaustion is incorrect. An IDEA plaintiff cannot sue after settling. Thus, neither can a non-IDEA plaintiff. Two, settlement doesn't excuse exhaustion. Neither the unavailability of damages nor settlement constitutes futility under the IDEA. Futility may excuse exhaustion where a court can grant relief that a hearing officer can't. But neither a hearing officer nor a court can award IDEA damages or adjudicate a settled claim. Thus, to the same extent, neither the unavailability of damages nor settlement constitutes futility for an ADA claim. I welcome the court's questions. Normally, a judge would grant an exemption as settling the case would have impacted Perez's ability to sue under the ADA. However, the Sixth Circuit Court judge according to Dvoretsky, said that because Perez settled prior to proceeding to a full hearing, he had forfeited his claim. Justice Thomas asked Mr. Dvoretsky to explain how such cases would be settled prior to the congressional adoption of the IDEA's Section 1415L in 1986, which was done in response to another 1984 Supreme Court case. This elicited a response from Ketanji Brown Jackson regarding the section's text. In response, Mr. Dvoretsky said the section originally focused less on financial relief and more so on helping a student obtain a FAPE. So, Justice Thomas, if it's a state law tort action, which I understand to be the, yeah. the premise of your question, then I think, no, you would not have IDA exhaustion. And that's because of the language of 1415L, which says nothing shall be construed to restrict or et cetera, rights under the Constitution, the ADA, the Rehabilitation Act, or other federal laws. So the... Was there before you had L, this provision, 1415L, did you have an exhaustion requirement? Before 15, before 1415L, uh, the 15, 1415L was a response to the court's decision in Smith. Yeah. And under the court's understanding in Smith, all FAPE-related claims had to proceed through the IDA exclusively. So an exhaustion requirement wasn't really relevant because you simply couldn't bring non-IDEA FAPE claims isn't that, at all. Isn't that, isn't that what's happening here with your interpretation of the statute? I mean, that's sort of what concerns me, that it was clear that you, uh, you're right, that there was a, uh, an attempt on the part of Congress to respond to Smith, um, and it would seem as though Congress was trying to make clear with the statutory language that we're interpreting, that they did not want all uh, claims arising out of these circumstances to have to go through the process. So how do you square um, 
that's the kind of abrogation piece of this with with your argument. Justice Jackson, two points. One about the, the history and context, and the other about the language of the statute that co the Congress actually enacted. With respect to the, the history and context, Smith really did three things, and Congress's response was not to overturn all of them. Uh, one, Smith said no attorney's fees under the IDEA. Congress changed that. Two, Smith said no non-IDEA FAPE claims, and Smith did, and uh, 1415L, did overturn that. But the third thing Smith said was that it had a concern with circumventing the IDEA's procedures. And Congress, in fact, reaffirmed that concern by, on the one hand, allowing non-IDEA FAPE claims to be brought, but on the other hand, channeling them first through the IDEA's exhaustion procedure. But, only, that's but, but that's not what the language says. The language says to the extent or if they are seeking the same relief, number one, and if we read it the way that you want to read it, doesn't, don't we end up going back to the part of Smith that you even agree Congress overturned, which is the part about um, whether or not we can have non-IDEA IDEA FAPE claims, because as Justice Barrett pointed out earlier, you know, through your analysis, it would seem as though you wouldn't have any ability to bring an ADA claim um, if someone, you know, is successful on the IDEA claim. Justice Jackson, I don't think that that is the result of our analysis, and I also don't think that is the correct textual reading of the statute. The result of our analysis does allow for non-IDEA FAPE claims to be brought once the IDEA's exhaustion procedures um, have, been, have been followed. So all we're talking about here is that if you have a FAPE claim, you bring that to the IDEA hearing officer first. You get a FAPE, which is the primary relief that the IDEA is concerned with. And once you have that, if you think you have an ADA claim to pursue, you can pursue that some number of months later. But Congress's focus, first and foremost, was on making sure that the, that the child gets a FAPE. With respect to the statutory text, I think all of this comes down to how we interpret, or how you interpret, the word relief in 1415L. And the word relief read in isolation can mean one of two things. It can either mean redress for a harm or it can mean a specific remedy. If you have a case, as I think is stipulated at this point in this, in this court, where the gravamen of the complaint is the denial of a FAPE, then that is the harm that is being redressed. More on this developing story next week, only on Disabulletin. Until then, I'm Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn. Up next, Free the Slaves on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn now to host and producer Richard Fitch. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. January 1st, 1863. Do you recognize that date? That's the day President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation took effect. 
How about December 18, 1865? That's the date the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution took effect, outlawing slavery everywhere in our country forever. So then, slavery was eliminated in America 158 years ago, right? Wrong. Slavery is still with us, here in the United States and here in Indiana. Today, we like to use more syllables, and it's called human trafficking. It's estimated that this nasty business rakes in $150 billion worldwide every year. People of all ages, even children, are forced to work without pay as farmhands or domestic servants, and even worse, the majority of today's human trafficking is sex-based, human beings forced into prostitution to enrich their masters. One of the most important ways modern slavery can be fought is when it is spotted and reported by people like you and me. Here's a website. Write it down. HumanTraffickingHotline.org All one word, HumanTraffickingHotline.org So far, just within the state of Indiana, They've found over a thousand cases of modern slavery and freed 2,344 victims. In 2021 alone, 123 slavers were busted and 176 slaves were freed. 99 of them were sex slaves, about 80% women and girls. How do you spot human trafficking? You notice that someone lives with their employer, lives with multiple people in poor conditions, acts fearful or submissive, is reluctant to or forbidden to speak alone with ordinary people like yourself, or gives answers to your questions that seem scripted or rehearsed. It's a big red flag if they don't have identity documents and say someone else is keeping them or if they show signs of physical abuse. What do you do about it? You report it. HumanTraffickingHotline.org is a great place to start, but you can also call the police and tell them what you know, what you've seen, or what you suspect. The United Nations and the International Labor Organization estimate that over 40 million people are being held as slaves in the world today. Their definition includes forced marriage and covers 160 countries where some form of slavery is still legal. We can't free them all, but we can free the ones that exist right in our own backyard, right this very minute. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending New Volunteer Orientation. 
feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, longer.